First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Well, I do love the 4th of July very much, everything that it uh, represents. I have so many great memories over the years of, of celebrating the 4th of July uh, with my family and with friends. I'm not sure uh, what you have planned for the rest of uh, this day. But you know, once you have kids, especially if you have little kids, uh, the 4th of July can have some challenges because probably, you know, if you're getting together with family, if you're getting together with friends, I know there's going to be a lot of food. Uh, I know that uh, their kids are going to be asking you all day long, you know, for like 17 of those red, white, and blue cookies, right? If they could have those. Before the night is over, they're going to be asking you if they can have something on fire in their hands tonight. That's going to happen for sure. Uh, If they can help set off some explosives at the end of the driveway, they're going to ask for that. And, you know, as a parent, it's kind of tough, right? Do you say yes? Do you say no? You know, depending on how old each of your your children uh, are. Uh, my boys, my four sons, uh, they love it when we get together with, uh, with my family. And because in, in my side of the family, we have this, uh, this great person, this special individual, my brother-in-law, Jay, that uh, they call their Uncle Jay. And, uh, uh, you know, Jay will always joke around with them. And so, like, if they come up and, you know, one of my sons asks me, you know, Dad, can I have another soda or whatever it is? You know, Jay will, will interject before I can answer and he'll say, of course you can't have another soda. It's the 4th of July, right? Have to. You know, can I have, a, can I have some more ice cream, Dad, or whatever? Like, yes, it's a holiday. You're at Grandmommy's house. Sure, have ice cream, have a cookie, have it all. And they love, of course, they love that answer. They, they love that, according to Uncle Jay, it is always time to say yes. But here's the question I want us to think about this morning as we study God's word. When is it time to say yes to Jesus? When is it time to say yes to Jesus? You know, actually, the answer to that question is the same as Uncle Jay's. It is always time to say yes to Jesus. The time to say yes to Jesus is now. The time to say yes to Jesus is when you hear Jesus's voice speaking to your heart. Of course, we know that not everybody does say yes to Jesus. And as we walk through this story today and this part of the Apostle Paul's life, I want you to notice with me three different types of people in this story. These three different types of people have three different responses to Jesus and to the message of Jesus. And I believe we can learn from all three of them, but I especially want to encourage you to hang with me until the end because the third type of person we're going to look at, I believe, has the most to say to us today. Uh, Well, the first type of people that we meet in this story are those who say no to Jesus. Those who say no to Jesus. Their reaction to the message of Jesus is a firm no. They don't want anything to do with Jesus. They don't want anything to do with the followers of Jesus, like the Apostle Paul. And before we get to this group of people, let's remember what's going on with Paul. He was in Jerusalem just a few weeks before this, was walking in the temple Uh, Some people began to yell out and shout out some things that were not true about him, but the crowd believed it. They grabbed Paul. They began to beat Paul and act of mob violence until the Romans under a certain commander named Lysias came down and rescued Paul. 
After that happened, though, we read about how a group of more than 40 uh, folks took an oath together that they would not eat anything or drink anything until they had put Paul to death. But God, in his sovereignty, placed Paul's nephew in just the right place at just the right time to hear that plot. He went and told Paul. Paul sent him to the commander. Lysias snapped into action. He didn't want uh, Paul, who was a Roman citizen, to die under his custody and his supervision. And so he uh, got to work. He sent Paul all the way over to Caesarea, about 70 miles away. He sent him with an escort of almost 500 Roman soldiers. They left in the middle of the night. They got to Caesarea and Felix, who was the presiding official, the governor of the province who was there, told Paul to wait until his accusers could come from Jerusalem to Caesarea and make their case against the Apostle Paul. When we come to Acts chapter 24, five days have now passed and Paul's accusers have come to Caesarea. Verse 1 introduces us to who his accusers were. They include the high priest Ananias. And we talked about him last week. He was considered one of, the mo- one of the worst high priests that Israel ever had. He was corrupt. He was greedy. He was violent. And he came with other elders who were members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. In verse 1, we also find out they brought with them a ringer, a lawyer named Tertullus. And we're, he was going to make the case for them before Felix. We don't know a lot about uh, Tertullus. Uh, We don't know if he was a Gentile or if he was a Greek-speaking Jew, but we assume that uh, as far as lawyers go in the city of Jerusalem, he was probably the best as the Supreme Court chose him to bring him along. He probably had some billboards in Jerusalem that said, you know, Dan Newland or Tertullus has got me 500,000 shekels last week, right? And so he was the best. They took him with him. And in verses 2 through 8, he makes his case against Paul. And you can see how smooth he really is, especially in verses 2 and 3 when he starts out. He says, seeing that through you, Felix, we enjoy great peace and prosperity and it's being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix with all thankfulness. Now he's, he's laying on the flattery really, really thick here. And the reality of the situation was a very different story. Felix was considered to be very ineffective in his position. Uh, His time in office was not marked by peace. In fact, it was marked by insurrections everywhere, violence escalating two years after this trial with the Apostle Paul. He would be removed from his office because of his poor handling of a violent situation. But nonetheless, Tertullus is flattering him. He wants him to think highly of him. He also says in verse 5 that he's going to keep things brief. Uh, He hoped maybe that would make him like him a little bit more also. And then he begins, not with a specific charge, but by calling Paul a name. He says that he is a plague. Over the last year and a half or so, we have some experience with plagues, don't we? And this is what Tertullus was actually saying about Paul. He was saying that he is like an infectious disease, that he and his teachings, that Christianity in general is infecting the Roman Empire and needs to be stopped. And then on behalf of the leaders, he lays out three charges against Paul in the next couple of verses. I like the way that Johnny Hunt has broke these charges down. He says, first of all, he broke Roman law. 
He broke Roman law. They said in verse 5 there that he was a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. Now, we have to admit, there is a grain of truth in that, because if you've been reading uh, through the book of Acts with us, you know that almost every city Paul went to, a riot broke out eventually. But if you've been reading with us through Acts, you also know that Paul was not the instigator of those riots, but that there were some who did not like his message, who tried to silence Paul and would stir up the crowds, just as happened in Jerusalem. Out of the three charges, though, this is the charge that would have most caught the Roman governor Felix's attention. Rome had wanted to keep peace at all costs and mentioned that Felix hadn't been doing such a great job of maintaining peace and order in his part of the Roman Empire. He didn't want to have any more disturbances. But Tertullus and the religious leaders were not done. Not only did they say that Paul had broken Roman law, they also said he had broken Jewish law. At the end of verse 6, they describe him as a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. The term Nazarene, of course, comes from the city of Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. Here, Tertullus is using that term to refer to all Christians. He uses the term sect to describe Christians as being unorthodox, as being some heretical breakaway group that needed to be put in their place. And then number three, they said that Paul was guilty of breaking God's law. That charge was based on this statement that he tried to profane the temple. Now that bogus charge goes back to Acts chapter 21 when uh, there were some Jews from Asia, most likely from the city of Ephesus, who made the claim that Paul had taken a Gentile beyond the court of the Gentiles into a part of the temple area that a Gentile was not allowed to go. Of course, Paul did no such thing, but that didn't stop them from making that false charge. It didn't stop Tertullus from repeating that false charge here in this trial before Felix. Now, there is some debate about verse 7 in our text, as well as the end of verse 6 and the beginning of verse 8, that little section there. Uh, that section is found in some of the ancient Greek manuscripts, but not in others. And those differences are reflected in our English translations as well. But I believe the argument is stronger for their inclusion. As scholar F.F. F. Bruce says, when what Tertullus says there in verses 6 through 8 really is in keeping with the tenor of the rest of his speech. I think verse 7 in particular is kind of funny. He makes it sound like uh, what happened to Paul in Jerusalem uh, was that this mob was not actually trying to beat Paul up. They just wanted to have a nice little chat with Paul until the Roman uh, commander, Lysias, came down and, quote, with great violence took him out of our hands. Now, if you know the real story, you know that that version of the story deserves about four Pinocchios. Uh, they were the ones inflicting great violence on Paul and would have likely beaten him to death until Lysias came and rescued Paul and saved Paul and prevented them from killing him. In verse 8, Tertullius wraps up his speech. In verse 9, all the other uh, religious leaders were standing there, nodding their heads, saying, yeah, what, what he said. We, we couldn't have said it better uh, ourselves. And so Tertullus and the high priest and the Jewish elders said no to Paul, and more importantly, they said no to Jesus. And there have always been those who have said no to Jesus. And while we know from what Paul wrote us in Ephesians 6 that our real enemy is never another person, our real enemy is 
always the spiritual forces of darkness. We also know that the enemy will use people to come against believers, to come against the church. We've seen that repeatedly through the book of Acts. I think what this story highlights, though, is that one way the enemy will come against believers is by misrepresentation, by misrepresenting and twisting the words and the deeds of believers to put them in the worst possible light. I don't know, friend, maybe something like that has happened to you. Maybe it's happened to you at work, or maybe it's happened to you on social media. It happened to the Apostle Paul. And we shouldn't be surprised when it happens to us. The message of the New Testament is that persecution in all of its forms should not be surprising to us. We should not think it's strange when we as followers of Christ are persecuted. We should think it's strange when we're not. Jesus told us to expect that persecution would come. And we need to be prepared for attacks, even attacks like this one. What I love in this story, though, is the calm and God-honoring way that Paul responds to all of these lies and all of this mischaracterization. We've seen those who say no to Jesus. And the Apostle Paul, we have an example of those who say yes to Jesus. After Tertullus is finished, the governor nods in Paul's direction, indicating it was his turn to speak. And Paul's defense His speech, in his own defense, is found from verse 10 all the way down to verse 21 in our text. In verse 10, Paul starts out with an introductory uh, statement like Tertullus did, but while his words are gracious and kind, they are not flattering or untrue like Tertullus' words were. Paul simply speaks about how Felix has been in his office for uh, quite a long while and therefore was familiar with the Jewish people. And so Paul says, I can cheerfully give my defense in front of you. And then Paul, in verse 11 and following, begins to make some counter arguments to all of the charges that had been brought against him. His first response in verse 11 is that he was not even in Jerusalem long enough to start up this full-scale revolt that the other side was claiming. He says, I was only even there for 12 days. And a few of those days, of course, he spent in custody. In verses 12 and 13, he says, I didn't start any riots and neither did they prove that I started any riots. He's making the point that in a court of law, you have to do better than just asserting something. You have to prove it. They gave no such evidence. Then in verses 14 through 16, he responds more or less to their charge that he was the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he says, yes, I am a follower of the way. And that was one of the ways that Christians referred to themselves in these early days. Comes from Jesus' statement in John 14, 6, where he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. He says, yes, I'm a follower of the way. I'm a follower of Jesus. But then he makes the argument that this is not some fringe separatist thing. This flows directly out of my faith in the God of my father's. He says, this flows directly out of my faith in the law and the prophets, what we would call the Old Testament. He says, I believe in God. He says, I have hope in God. I believe in the resurrection, both of the just and the unjust. In other words, one day everyone will rise and stand before the Lord on the day of judgment. He says, I believe in all of that. In other words, what I believe today, again, is not some some departure from the scriptures. It's the fulfillment of the scriptures. 
What I believe in is that the promises that God gave to our fathers have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And then in verse 16, Paul says this. Look at that verse with me. He says, This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense towards God and man. He's speaking about the manner in which he lived his life, that he always tried to honor God. He always tried to keep his conscience clear. And you know, as an aside, that, that's a good principle for all of us to live by, isn't it? To keep our consciences clear towards God and towards others. Peter wrote about that in 1 Peter 3. He said this, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. That's more or less the point that Paul is making here because they were defaming him, weren't they? They were slandering him. They were speaking about him as an evildoer. But his lifestyle, the way that he lived his life, betrayed that what they were saying about him was a lie. I pray that would be the case with us as well, that we would live with a clear conscience and put to a lie those who would slander us or say something about our character. In verses 17 and 18, he says a little bit more about his character. He gives the real reason why he came to Jerusalem in the first place. He says, I didn't come there to to start a riot. I came there to bring an offering. And we've talked a lot about this offering in our study of Acts that Paul was collecting. He was collecting it for the poor believers in Jerusalem who had been going through a famine. Uh, And he talks about it a lot in his letters that are found in the New Testament, but this is actually the only clear reference to that offering in the book of Acts. And Paul says, this is why I came to Jerusalem. I, I didn't come to start a riot. I came to help people. I came to minister to them. I came to give them a gift that has been collected for their sakes. He was in the temple minding his own business. He says, I was actually purifying myself when the Jews from Asia raised a ruckus. At the end of Paul's speech, verses 19 through 21, he begins to call on some witnesses. And he starts by appealing to some witnesses who were not there in verse 19, who should have been there. The Jews from Ephesus who said that he took a Gentile into a part of the temple where he wasn't supposed to. He he points out the fact that they were not actually there. They didn't bother to show up in court. And so how could he be convicted of crimes when the real accusers were not even there to testify against him? And then in verses 20 and 21, he turns to the witnesses who were there. To these religious leaders who just a few days before this had already tried the Apostle Paul in their court in the Sanhedrin. And he says, let them testify to the fact. The only statement that I really made is this statement. Look at the end of verse 21. I cried out, standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. Paul says, that's the real reason why I am on trial. It's not because of any of the things they just said. It's because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. You know, some defense speeches are better than others, but this one by Paul was truly masterful. Uh, I'm sure that every parent in this room can testify uh, that uh, you have heard some defense speeches from your children that are a little less masterful uh, than this one. Uh, My youngest son, Zeke, who's, who's three years old, and my humble but accurate opinion, is like the cutest boy who has just ever lived. And, uh, but, but he has given us many examples over the last three years that what the Bible says about the sin nature 
uh, is, is accurate, is true. And so uh, there have been times where he, uh, for example, will, you know, will hit one of his brothers, and we know full well that he hit one of his brothers. And we'll call him over, we'll say, now Zeke, did, um, did you just hit your brother? And he'll look at us and say, no, no, I didn't. I didn't, I didn't hit him. But, but he has a, a dead giveaway because whenever he's lying, right after he says, no, he goes. <laughs> and we say, Zeke, I'm, your, your smile betrays that, that your no, I think, is probably a, a yes. And so his defense speeches are not all that convincing. But Paul's is. He really dismantles the arguments that are made against him. He points out, again, the real accusers were not even there. He didn't present, they didn't present any real actual evidence against him. And, and what he says here really was sufficient for Felix to throw the case out and to release Paul. But we'll see in a moment, Felix does not do that. And before we get to that, you know, Paul really models well for us how someone who has said yes to Jesus can stand firm under pressure, and can even give a defense of themselves and a defense of charges and lies and mischaracterizations that are being said about them and can do it without being ugly, without being mean-spirited, without calling people names. And that is easier said than done when someone is attacking the most sincere beliefs that you and I hold. I believe that in our culture, we have seemingly lost the ability to do this, to disagree without being disagreeable. And so when a believer, because of the supernatural, God-given ability that comes from the presence of the Holy Spirit, is able to passionately disagree with someone while equally passionately loving them and respecting them, that is something that stands out more and more in our culture today. And it can also earn you a hearing to be able to share the good news of Jesus with that person. I believe that's actually what happens here. That Paul, as we'll see in just a moment, gets an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with Felix and with Felix's wife, Drusilla. And he gets that opportunity, I believe in part, because of the way that he conducted himself when he was on trial. We've talked about those who say no to Jesus Talked about those who say yes to Jesus. The last group of folks in this story, and really this is where I want us to spend the rest of our time this morning thinking about this group. There are those who say maybe later to Jesus. In verse 22, Felix makes his decision about his case, and the decision that he makes is really to not make a decision. If you look at it there, he just adjourns the proceedings and says, you know, well, let me wait until uh, Lysias can come from Jerusalem and let me ask him some questions. And after I have a chance to talk to him, you know, well, then I'll, I'll give my ruling. But the reality is he already knew what Lysias thought. And we know that he knew what Lysias thought because we have a copy of the letter from Lysias to Felix in the last chapter right before this in Acts chapter 23 where Lysias very clearly says that Paul has done nothing wrong. He's done nothing worthy of death, nothing worthy of imprisonment, that he did not find any credibility in the charges. And so Felix didn't need to interview Lysias to find out what he thought. And the text never tells us that he ever really does call for Lysias to come from Jerusalem. No evidence that he ever does that. And so really what I believe is that this was just a strategy on his part 
Felix's part to just kind of kick the can down the road and not have to make a decision. Try to keep everybody happy with him. As we'll see in just a minute, he does very much the same thing when it comes to his own personal spiritual life. Tries to kick the can down the road. That's where it really gets interesting to me because Felix, although he does not release Paul like he should have, I think deep down he knows that Paul is innocent and also he seems to be drawn to the apostle Paul. Look at verse 24 with me. It says, And after some days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Wow, so Felix and Drusilla actually call for Paul. Now, mind you, they didn't have to do that. They could have left Paul where he was and never seen him again if they didn't want to. But they called for Paul, invited Paul to come and speak to them about Jesus. That's what the verse says. Now, understand how remarkable that is. Let me give you a little bit of the backstory of Felix and Drusilla. Felix had the distinction of being the first slave, freed slave, to have ever become the governor of a Roman province. That would be a remarkable achievement if he had won that and earned that in his own right, but history tells us that he did not, that his brother, Pallas, was a good friend with the Roman emperor, Claudius, and begged him to put his brother, Felix, in that post. We've already said Felix was not particularly good at his job. He handled things very poorly. He was at times brutal. The Roman historian Tacitus said this about Felix centuries ago. He said he was a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king with the spirit of a slave. In addition to all of that, Drusilla was Felix's third wife and Felix was her second husband. Drusilla is described to us in history as being a young woman of exceptional, unusual beauty. She was married to a man named Azizus, who ruled a little dinky kingdom in Syria. She was apparently not all that impressed with that little kingdom or with her husband. And so Felix, who was taken with her beauty, was able to lure her away from her husband to become his third wife. And at the time that Drusilla met the apostle Paul, all of this had happened in her life. She wasn't even yet 20 years of age. So that's Felix and Drusilla, not exactly the most likely folks in the world to come to you and ask you to start a small group Bible study with them. (laughs) But that is what they do with Paul, isn't it? They invite Paul to come. Paul shares the gospel with them. The text says they heard him concerning the faith in Christ. So they weren't talking about the weather. They weren't talking about their favorite chariot drivers. He was telling them about Jesus. And this also wasn't just some kind of make you feel good, make you go home happy kind of a message. Look at the next verse, verse 25. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Stop right there for just a minute. So Paul talks with Felix, the Roman governor, and his wife, Drusilla, first of all, about righteousness. He told them about how God is righteous. 
How God is perfectly holy and right in all that he does. He, he, I'm sure, told them about how God's standard for us is that we must be perfectly holy and righteous in order to be in his presence and to do life with him. And I'm sure Paul told them that we are not. That we are unrighteous. That we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It says he taught them about self-control. Self-control is what is needed in order to live a righteous life. But of course, it's not something that we have until the Holy Spirit gives it to us. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And he's speaking to a couple who, by all accounts, their life was marked by a complete lack of self-control. And then he starts to press in even more upon their consciences and upon their hearts. He starts to speak with them about the judgment that is to come. That one day, all of us, including Felix and Drusilla, would meet the God who made them and give an account for their lives. And I'm sure he told them that because they were not righteous, because they did not exercise self-control, that they were not ready to meet the Lord on that day of judgment at all. And that the only way that they could be ready is if they put their faith and their trust in the Son of God, Jesus Christ who died for their unrighteousness at the cross, paid for it with his own blood, and rose again on the third day. And by the way, I love that here is the Apostle Paul literally standing in front of a man who has the power of life and death over him. And yet he boldly proclaims the gospel to them. He loves them enough to tell them what they needed to hear, the true gospel message that called them to repent and to trust in Christ. And they're convicted. At least we know that Felix was. Because it tells us that. It tells us about his response there at the end of verse 25. Felix was afraid. The word afraid there means to be startled. It means to be terrified. He was at a crisis moment in his life. He had just heard about his unrighteousness. He had just heard about his need to repent, his need to trust in Christ. He just heard about a judgment day that was coming for him that he was not ready for. Again, it was a crisis moment in his life. What would he do? What would he decide? It says, this is how he answered. Go away for now. And when I have a convenient time, I will call for you. And some people say yes to Jesus. Some people say no to Jesus. Some people say maybe later. And the problem with maybe later is that later never tends to come. Now, there's an old English proverb that says one of these days is none of these days. And that was the case with Felix. Verse 26, it says Felix did keep calling for Paul off and on over the next two years. Paul would come and speak with him. The text tells us his motives were a little bit mixed whenever he did that. He hoped that maybe the more he called Paul, raised his profile, that maybe some of Paul's friends would get some money together and throw a bribe his way in order to get their friend released. That never happened. At the end of two years, Felix's time with Paul came to an end. He was removed from his post. He was replaced with a man that we'll talk about next week, Portius Festus. And then in one final act of cowardice, even though the changing of the governors would have been a natural time for Felix to let Paul go because he knew that Paul was innocent, 
Verse 27 says he didn't do it. He wanted to do the Jews a favor. And so he left Paul bound. Of course, that's all a part of God's sovereign plan for Paul's life. We'll talk more about that part of the story next week. But here's what I really want us to think about today with the time we have left. Even though Felix heard Paul's message off and on after that first day for the next two years, it doesn't seem that that moment of conviction came again with quite the same intensity as it did that first day. And there's a real danger in that, isn't there, of hearing God speak, sensing his conviction in your heart, knowing that you need to respond to the gospel, that you need to respond to Christ, but deciding to put it off till another more convenient time. The reality is we cannot wait until it is convenient. We need to respond when we are convicted. And there really is no guarantee that if we fail to respond to that conviction that will ever sense that conviction in quite the same manner. I heard a story about a meeting that happened in hell one day. Satan called his four leading demons together and he said to these four, he said, we need to come up with a new lie that will help to keep more souls in bondage. And the first demon spoke up and he said, I know what we'll do. We'll go down to earth and we'll tell them that there is no God. And Satan said, well, that won't work. They can just look around them. They see the evidence of God is everywhere. We need something better than that. The second demon said, well, I know. We'll tell them that there is no heaven. And Satan said, that won't work either. God's placed eternity in their hearts. They all want to go to heaven. That won't work. We need something else. A third demon spoke up and said, I'll go and tell them that there is no hell. Satan said, you can't do that either. Deep down, they know that they're sinners. They know that a day of judgment is coming. And then a fourth demon quietly said this. He said, you know, I think I have the answer. I'll go down to earth and I'll tell them that there is no hurry. You know, if you think about it, in order to achieve his goal of keeping a person dead in their sins, Satan doesn't necessarily have to get you to say no to Jesus. He can just encourage you to say maybe later. And to keep saying maybe later until later never comes. Until that moment of conviction is past. Until that annoying Apostle Paul type Christian who keeps telling you about your need for Jesus is no longer a part of your life. And we can go about our merry way and we can keep pushing and suppressing the truth and and pushing out of our minds every nagging thought that comes that one day a judgment day is waiting for us that we're not ready for. But that judgment day is getting closer every day no matter what we think or how we suppress it. Here's what Paul said in Acts 17, because he, God, has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man, Jesus, whom he has ordained. And he has given assurance of this to all of us by raising him from the dead. Friend, I hope you also hear today that God loves you. That's the message of his word. He loves each and every one of us in spite of our sin. It's a wonderful truth. He doesn't 
want, his will is not for any of us to perish. The Bible says he wants and longs to see us come to repentance. And so friend, if you haven't yet surrendered your heart and your life to Jesus, Jesus is calling you and inviting you to surrender today, to turn and, and from your sin, to turn in faith to Jesus, to receive the gift of salvation that he alone can give. And so friend, here's the very simple question. And I want you to think about today, what is your answer to Jesus? You know, some of you I know have already said yes to Jesus. And because you have, you're my brothers and my sisters in Christ. You've been saved by the same grace, the same love of God that has saved me. A friend, if you're here today and you haven't yet said yes to Jesus, don't make the same tragic mistake that Felix made of saying to your God, come back at a more convenient time. I'll call for you when I'm ready. Because friend, that's not how it works. The time to respond to God is when you hear his voice. The time to say yes to Jesus is right now. Here's what the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 6, for he says, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. In the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. I want to ask you to stand. And if you're ready today, if you're ready right now to say yes to Jesus, I want to invite you to come. I know maybe you're visiting here today. Maybe it's your first day here and you're thinking, what are you, what are you talking about? But you know God's speaking to you. You hear his voice today. You know this is the day I need to respond to him. Don't let anything keep you in your seat. In fact, you don't even have to wait for me to stop talking. If God is speaking to you, you can come now. Speak with me or one of the other pastors who's standing here. They're ready to speak with you, ready to receive you. I can assure you, our whole church family will celebrate with you today if you come to make that decision of trusting Christ and saying yes to Jesus. If you need to bring a friend with you, bring a friend with you, but you, you come. Again, don't make that mistake Felix made, that tragic mistake of saying maybe later because now is the day, now is the time to say yes to Jesus. You come.